0: Be reading Psalm 22, verses 1 through 25. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 22. To the chief musician upon Ajaleth Shahar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And why art thou far, so far, from helping me, and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and they stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. For thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. Amen. May God bless the reading and the further preaching of his word shortly. To Psalm 22, and primarily, but also with the context, we will be... Looking at Psalm 1, verse 1 of Psalm 22. We we have looked in the past in in this psalm in a a more general way, but but I am hoping this Lord's Day to focus on verse 1. Where David um, speaks prophetically of what Christ would experience and say, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And why art Thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. Now you may remember that last Lord's Day in preparation for the Lord's Supper today, we we saw two more figures of forgiveness. That of, of the purging with hyssop and also of asking God to hide His face from our sins. Now, the, the figure of asking God to hide His face from our sins has actually two things happening. There, there are two figures in terms of that. When we ask God to hide His face from our sins, we are not asking God to hide His face from us completely. We want Him to look upon us in love, but we are asking that He would hide His face of judgment from us in regards to our sins. But you'll remember that it's this very picture that made us think of the moment where the Lord Jesus on the cross had the Father looking upon Him with His justice, and that's why He suffered... And yet there was the moment where Christ cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which implies that God is not looking upon him. God is hiding his face, his face of love. And this is why um, even Christ, as He's speaking prophetically through David in this psalm in verse 24, it says, For He hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath He hid His face from Him. So even as we ask, Lord, hide Thy face from our sins, we don't want Him to hide His face from us in terms of our needing Him. And this is what leads us then to see in Christ. He he is experiencing God's face of justice and he's experiencing the forsakenness of God's faith, God's face in terms of love and in terms of compassion. And so this is what leads leads us to this psalm and to consider um, for the first time, very focused way, this This question that Christ utters from the cross. We we can literally say it is the question with the greatest amount of mystery and intensity. It is the question with greatest poignancy and darkness. It is the question that, that evokes the greatest wonder from our hearts as well as the greatest praise. It causes the greatest sorrow as well as the greatest joy. If you understand it as far as Scripture is able, uh, does, is willing to reveal it, it must do this to your heart. It must evoke from every human heart the greatest mourning, sorrow, as well as the greatest thankful emotion. Joy and sorrow are, are linked together into that one question that this one man asked on the cross and it's because of who asked it of course and it's because of where he was and also because of what the answer is so it brings joy because of its result but it brings sorrow because of its need the true believer is the one who should be most glad because He is the one who benefits of its outcome. But also, it's the true believer who should be most grieved because it was in His behalf. This utter suffering of Jesus, even as it was brought by all the enemies of God, some of whom would become believers, but many of whom didn't, They're not the ones for whom this suffering was. It is true believers who needed Christ to suffer as He did. So throughout this sermon, I I will hope to bring a lot of quotes from many of the pastors in the past... It's almost in the sense of, of needing um, other other preachers to be to be preaching also to you because this is so profound. It is such a such a mysterious psalm. Many agree that this is the hardest passage of scripture to preach from so it is a great blessing to know that we're we're not alone there are other pastors that preached or commented on on this passage and i and i want to bring some of what they said Um, spurgeon said this in this black spot of grief we find our heaven while gazing upon the cross this which might be thought a frightful sight makes the christian glad and joyous if he laments the cause, yet he rejoices in the consequences and that 's what I mean about this sadness and joy altogether we We lament why this was needed, and yet we rejoice in the consequences that were brought forth and we will We will look through five brief points, some of them very brief i 'll start with simply the wonder, the wonder that that we that we have as we contemplate this psalm, and especially verse 1, but the totality of this psalm, it evokes this wonder from our hearts. This, this is in a sense the, the main emotion that we are left with, with awe, with, with a sense of, of not understanding it fully and astonished and amazed. Um, as we contemplate the the anguish in the heart of this one who is suffering the the spiritual realities round about him the, the the eternal relationship he had with the father, and yet this this is what we're seeing there's there's been an interruption of that relationship there's there's been um, a, a, a rupture and and this is what Um, Christ is bemoaning, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? It it implies the reality there's there's been an eternity of communion. and, And now there is this severing of the communion. Like How? How can this be? How can we really explain that God is forsaking God? That He who is eternal is being deserted by the Eternal One. This is what I mean, simply the wonder, the depths. And Theodore Beza. Um, he recommends that we continually meditate upon this psalm to become acquainted with with quote the battle of Christ on which our own victory depends, and in it we may plainly behold not only how horrible it is to fall into the hand of God, our judge but also how great the loving kindness of God is toward his church, and finally how sublime the mystery of god's wisdom is. Surely this psalm, among others is worthy never to be put out of our hands and memory, for it depicts the self-emptying of the Son of God in those most sorrowful groans that He uttered in His wrestling with Satan, our sin and death, as if He was forcing His way out of the very bottom of a whirlpool. We almost see with our very eyes and hear with our very ears." And he goes on to say how this psalm not only does this, but it also describes the illustrious victory of his resurrection. As we continue reading this this man who is in such depths of sorrow, he goes on to praise God and to rejoice that all that sorrow will bring so much joy. So... We, we see that this psalm is, is marking like a turn of events. There's, there's a relationship that was broken. And, and there's, in a sense, nothing that we can do that will be exaggerating. The greatest relationship has been severed. And it's been severed in the greatest of ways. It's not, it's not just a little disagreement. It is a forsakenness between God and God. And God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, we would say, has the greatest unbound relationship. Relationship that can never be uh, misconstrued or a misunderstanding between them. But there's been a severing. There's been this, this fracture. The Lord Jesus Himself says in John 16, 32, I am not alone because the Father is with Me. But there would be the moment on the cross... Where that would no longer be true, in terms at least of Christ's sensing this and acknowledging this. Luther, it is nice, good to see what what he says. He says that this is a kind of gem among the Psalms and is peculiarly excellent and remarkable. It contains those deep, sublime, and heavy sufferings of Christ when agonizing in the midst of the terrors and pangs and heavy sufferings of Christ which surpass all human thought and comprehension. I know not whether any psalm throughout the whole book contains matter more weighty from which the hearts of the godly can so truly perceive those sighs and groans inexpressible by man which Lord and Head Jesus Christ uttered when conflicting for us in the midst of death and in the midst of the pains and terrors of hell Wherefore, this psalm ought to be most highly prized by all who have any acquaintance with temptations of faith and spiritual conflicts. So not only does it make us wonder at what Christ has done, but it comes as we're going to see as a psalm that fills the heart of the Christian with the help that he needs when you feel at any time, in any given way, in any given intensity, forsaken of God. If you feel a spiritual desertion, Christ comes here to your aid to say, "Well, you're not truly spiritually deserted because I am with you and I know precisely what you feel because I felt it in greater dimension on the cross." So first the wonder, but then this leads us secondly to the cry. Just looking at this cry itself, this this has been called the cry of dereliction. It is a cry. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? The word dereliction means an intentional abandonment. He is saying, Father, but I cannot call Thee Father. So I say, God, why have You intentionally abandoned me? Your Son, eternally begotten. The One whom I heard not too long ago that I am the beloved Son, to hear Him. I was in the garden and You did send angels to minister to me. Why now am I abandoned, forsaken? See, the word we give to this is spiritual desertion. The Lord Jesus feels deserted spiritually. It's the communion he had with God is severed. It is it is ruptured. That, that's a cry expressing that this is what Christ is feeling and experiencing on the cross. And so we see the wonder, we see the cry, something of it. It is a cry of despair, it is a cry of desertion, it is a cry that speaks of pain. So that's a third element to consider the pain. If we have to say one thing about this cry, is that of course it expresses the pain that Christ has experienced, is experiencing on the cross. And, and again, in terms of, it, it is not an exas- exaggeration. I have never read any commentator, any pastor who will dare say anything different that this is the climax, the, the, the height, the, the greatest element of pain. That Christ suffered on the cross. Matthew Henry says this here, he is here dying, dying in pain and anguish because he was to satisfy for sin, which brought in pain and for which we must otherwise have lain in everlasting anguish. He is here, is dissolution of the whole frame of the body. When the Lord Jesus says in verse 14, I am poured out like water. See, the Lord Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm like liquefied now. It is as my body and soul is a drink offering. I am undone. Now, all throughout this psalm, we we find many elements of the pain of Christ. He begins with, with this feeling of forsakenness, and then we can give titles like this. He is feeling contempt. He is feeling mocked. He is feeling reproached. He is feeling surrounded by violent people. He is being emptied up. He is hurting. He is burning. He is thirsting. He is disdained. And He is dying. And all the while... In verse 19 we read one more thing. It, it makes all of this pain worse. But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. He's alone. Can you imagine hurting and alone? Mocked and alone. Burning as it were, but alone. Alone. And that's what forsaken means. The whole reality that he is suffering all of this in a lonely way. This is the pain. So the wonder, the cry, the pain. And this then leads us to the words. And we'll see just a few of the words in that first verse. First, the words, my God. You maybe have heard this before. In the midst of all this sense of despair, in the sense of all this sense of forsakenness, my God, my God, especially twice, comes as a confession of faith. It is Calvin who puts it this way. He calls it, it was a distinct confession of faith. He, he called this language of assurance Then he says this, "...calling God twice his own God and depositing his groanings into his bosom, he makes a very distinct confession of his faith. Yea, we see that here he has given the first place to faith. Before he allows himself to utter his complaint in order to give faith the chief place, he first declares that he still claimed God as his own God and betook himself to him for refuge." See, even as he feels his forsakenness, he must say, You are mine, my God, my God. So these words are a confession of faith, but it's also, they are also a confession of love. Even as he feels forsaken, which implies there's no love, doesn't make him stop loving his father, and so he calls him mine. Um, Matthew Henry says this, When we want the faith of assurance, we must live by the faith of adherence. Beloved, let, let us remember this. We don't always feel that God is loving us. But we must know that He does. Because He promised it. And because He proved it. He says that He loves the world that He sent His own Son. That is His declaration. And then Jesus was born into this world and did die on the cross for sinners, which is the proof. And so if you and I at any given moment don't feel that God loves us, we must then live by the promise that He does. And that is what it means to live by faith and not by sight. So, so Matthew Henry says, when we want the faith of assurance, we must live by a faith of adherence. However it be, yet God is good and He is mine. Though He slay me, yet I trust in Him, as Job said. Though He do not answer me immediately, I will continue praying and waiting. Though He be silent i will not be silent this is what jesus is saying lord i feel forsaken but i will not forsake you i will continue to adhere i will continue to grab i will continue to plead i will continue to beseech i feel that you are far but i will not go far i will plead that you will come near and that is love that is the confession of faith and confession of love. So that is my God. But now let us look at the word why. The word why, which is the beginning of the question, actually goes to three questions. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? Why art thou far from the words of my roaring? Let me. God's word gives us answers to these three questions. Now, think of the humiliation of Jesus that He is God and these are these questions because of the pain and severity He was under. And yet we have been given by God His Word that answers these very questions of Jesus on the cross. Well, why hast thou forsaken me? And in a word, it's because He was a sin offering for His people. And beloved, go back to that figure. Boys and girls, think of that little lamb. That little lamb or a goat or the oxen that was brought to the priest and the priest would put it on on the altar. No one helped that lamb die. Helping wasn't even part of, of the whole ceremony. The family was being helped. The family was being blessed. Their sins were transferred upon that lamb. And that lamb, the lot of the lamb was to be slain and to be burnt, not to be helped. The burning of that lamb didn't symbolize only that God was accepting that lamb. It actually symbolized God was rejecting that lamb. That lamb has sinned, so it must die. And it must be consumed by fire. See, helping wouldn't be be part of the equation. So why hast Thou forsaken Me? We we can answer through God's Word because dear Lord Jesus, You were at that moment being the Lamb who cannot be helped and who cannot be be, be accompanied, who must suffer, who must die. And why art Thou far from helping Me? Because He must tread the winepress alone. No priest helped the suffering lamb. Goat or oxen, it had to die alone. See, if a priest were to, in a sense, help that lamb, it's almost like he would also help pay for the sins. And so the glory would be shared between the victim and the priest offering the victim. And this is what's astonishing. Who's the priest? It's Jesus offering himself. And we could speak of the Father offering his lamb. But look what the Father is doing. The Father is saying, My son, I will give you all the glory. You are the strong who will receive all the spoil. It is true that the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And and there's this dynamic. God the Father could not die. God the Spirit could not die. They, They have no bodies like men. They are spirit. But Thou, my Son, have a body. So you must die alone. See, we can answer. Why art Thou far from helping me? And then the last question. Why art Thou far from the words of my roaring? See, there was that given moment in the life of Christ, in his being a sacrifice for sinners. There were moments where God did send his help. He sent his voice, he sent angels, he He sent um, um, Elijah and Moses, and then the voice of God in that Mount of Transfiguration confirming that, that he is his beloved son. In Gethsemane, there was an angel. But now his father is a judge. And from a judge, the criminal who is being condemned has no help. That is why God is far from the words of his roaring. So those are the words. But but then, um, lastly, in terms of words, let's think of the warring too. When you look at roaring, you think, well, these aren't even words. But the, tone, the, the, the message says, the, the God's Word says, and from the words of my roaring. So that the warrings are also words to look at. So we, we saw my God. We saw the why. And now let's look at the roarings because Jesus calls His roarings words. And, and this shows that for God... Nothing of you, beloved, if you have groans and you cannot even put them into words, God sees them as words and they enter heaven as prayers. And this is how Christ's wars arrived before the Father who, yes, in His love could not be showing forth, but later, because of His sacrifice being received, there was the reconciliation between Father and Son. And you could say, ultimately, even the roars were heard in heaven of Christ. Some commentators explain that that this roar was kind of like evoking the pain of like a wounded animal. So great was His pain and His agony that words give way to roaring and to screaming. Um, John Flavel um, brings the, the dynamic that yes, here's Christ meek as a lamb, but on the cross as He suffered, the pain was so great and the forsakenness was so sorrowful to Him that He roars like a lion under that magnificent burden. So those are the words. So we've seen the wonder, the cry, the pain, the words. And then lastly, we will just touch on the reason. And we've already talked about this reason when we're thinking why. Why did Jesus suffer this forsakenness? But I just want to conclude now with one, with one main point. And as we are at the table, we will think of another element of reason that is such a blessing for the believer. But simply this. What was Jesus doing? What's the cross all about? What was it for? And what did it accomplish? Well, Jesus was there being a substitute for you and for me. He is on the cross a substitute being offered to this world. And all who look upon Him in faith will have Him as such. Calvin said this, As he became our representative and took upon him our sins, it was certainly necessary that he should appear before the judgment seat of God as a sinner. He was never a sinner, but he appeared as one. From this proceeded the terror and dread which constrained Him to pray for deliverance from death. Not that it was so grievous to Him merely to depart from this life, but because there was before His eyes the curse of God to which all who are sinners are exposed. And this cry of the Lord Jesus answers once and for all the the proof that His death was a sacrifice for sin. And I say this because there are some who think His death was a mistake. That Jesus had a ministry. He was caught, arrested. The ministry ended. That He was overpowered by men. That it was not His mission um, so much to, to die. But He did die. So he failed his mission. He was captured. That's, that's what all the Jews in those days who thought of a Messiah as a ruling king, and until today, who don't receive him as Jesus, that's what they have in their minds. He failed as the Messiah. And it was not. This is, this is one that arised in the Middle Ages in the church. The thought that Jesus was becoming, was in the cross the supreme example of sacrificial love. That if you live your life in that way, if you imitate Jesus in that sacrificial way, you too will be saved. And Jesus is your Savior and that He was the best example that you should follow. And it's, it's cruel to think that the Father, to make Christ an example, would have to make Him suffer to that extent no it's not to say it's not an example of course it is but that's not the supreme thing about the death of Christ he was dying for sinners and this is how we should see it that on the cross he was the lamb sacrificed for sinners who cried like a lion due to his pain and agony so that and I close with this every Christian battle is won upon this one that our Savior fought and I know I'm speaking to hearts who knows precisely what your battles are how will you win those battles it's through this one that Jesus fought let me make a list. Abraham had to succeed in physical battles against kings of the north and the surrounding tensions, and against the battles of his own pride and lies. Lot had to succeed from the temptations of Sodom because he lived so near to so much evil. Joseph had to succeed in Egypt. Moses had to prevail against Pharaoh. Joshua had to conquer the whole promised land and and remain humble. Samuel had to prevail against Saul. David had to kill Goliath and deliver Israel from the Philistines from the south. The Edomites and Moabites from the east, the Assyrians from the north, and most of all, he had to conquer sin from within. Peter had to conquer his inclination to denial. Saul, Paul, had to be delivered, um, had to conquer his sin of violent unbelief. And for any one of us to be saved, we must be delivered from our sins. For any of this to happen, Jesus had to suffer precisely as he did, as he substitute for sinners. And because he did, there is salvation. And because he did, there is hope for all who believe in him. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God Almighty, we thank Thee for having given us Thy Son, and we thank Thee, Lord Jesus, for having drunk the cup in full. And Lord, we do follow the great tension that this was, even from the time of Gethsemane, but Thy willingness to do so, for it was the Father's will. And there in Gethsemane thou wert able to call him Father and still be comforted by an angel. In the great agony that brought even great drops of blood. Lord Jesus, we thank Thee. We thank Thee, Lord, for weeping there at Gethsemane for us. We thank Thee, Lord, for being willing to drink the full cup of the wrath of God. And we see through Psalm 22... And we see in Matthew where Thou did utter that cry. Why the tension of Gethsemane was so great. And we pray, Lord, that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that Thou would fill our hearts both with the wonder that brings grief, but also the wonder that brings joy. We ask, Lord, that Thou would help us. Be with us, Lord. Even as we continue reading the words in the form and as we continue to worship through through the visible um, tokens of the gospel, the bread and the wine, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.